Hey, it's Sunny Days. I am the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Listen, I am a podcast her, okay, H-E-R, an activist, a thought leader, pin pusher, and lover of poodles. And I'm Lisa Davis, MPH. I am a lover of social justice, healthy living, dogs, and I love being the co-host and co-creator of Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Now is the time for honest, unfiltered conversations, for authentic voices and their stories, and for connection. Join us as we confront the moment head on with this podcast. It is passionate. It is real as lives behind the headlines. Active allyship, it's more than a hashtag. And listen, it goes beyond the likes, the retweets, and the hashtags, making space for the vital dialogue necessary for racial justice. And now on to the show. I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Active Allyship. I'm sad to say that Sunny is away today. However, we have a wonderful guest. I absolutely love her book. It is so important. I highly recommend it. When you're done listening, please go and get this book. It is called The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. It is by Rhonda V. McGee, forward by John Kabat-Zinn. Rhonda, McGee, MDJD, is a professor of law at the University of San Francisco, also trained in sociology and mindfulness-based stress reduction, MSBR. She is a highly practiced facilitator of restorative MSBR-based interventions for minimizing the effects of social identity-based bias and deepening connections across lines of real and perceived difference. Maggie has been a visiting scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society and a visiting professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Rhonda, I'm thrilled to have you here on Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here with you. It's so great to have you. The first question that Sunny always asks all of our guests is, what were you marinated in? (laughs) I was marinated in... um, I would say the kind of, you know, legacies of racism and sexism in the Southern context. I was born and raised in um, the South, right? So Kenston, North Carolina, the small town, um, 30 miles inland from the coast or so uh, in Southeast Carolina, and then raised in North, in uh, Virginia. And so I think, you know, the context that I was in was one where we're very um, working class people. Um, influenced a lot by by kind of Christianity and um, and struggling right to survive to thrive back up backs up against the wall yeah. in terms of not having enough resources and um, and you know living some of the legacies of racism sexism the intersections of all that um, in, in in our time so but also I was marinated in you know um, the example of people, as my grandmother would say, making a way out of no way. (laughs) So, you know, relying on her, my grandmother had her own kinds of practices for surviving the 20th century and all of the ways that, you know, white supremacy came back with a vengeance following the reconstruction. My, my grandmother lived that, that whole era and um, found a way to center herself on her gifts, her, the meaningfulness of her life, her the way she could make a contribution, even though she was in struggle. 
So, so yeah, I was marinating all that. Thank you for that question. <laughs> oh, no, I love that's so incredible. Well, you know, the book is is amazing. It looks at mindfulness in a way of how it's going to help people who have had racism against them. Yes. How to handle the mm-hmm. insanity of it, yes. right? Yes. I mean, I just want to punch every racist face in, but <laughs> if you listen to the show, everyone's like, yep, that's Lisa. And Sunny would be like, okay, take a breath, hon. Yes. So, and it's also for people who get triggered, like white people get triggered by white privilege, which also mm-hmm. annoys me, but that's my mm-hmm. thing. Because I think we should be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You just come to it in such a brilliant way. So it's really a book for everybody, if, if you yeah. can expand on that. Yeah, thank you so very much. Um, we all are struggling around race in our different ways. Right. right. This is this is not to say it's all the same by any means or it's equally difficult by any means. Right. It's, okay. It can be very unique. But we're all human beings having a human experience trying to address this thing called race and racism. And so whether we have been targeted by bias, and, you know, whether we've experienced walking down the street and having somebody yell out a racial slur or or, you know, deny us a job or some other important opportunity, housing, um, et cetera, because of our race. And we kind of know that's what's going on. And, or we experienced, have experienced over the last few years, a kind of waking up to the reality, right? We might, if our friends who are white body may have lived a, li- a life in which race wasn't on the radar. Racism wasn't deemed to be something to think about or worry about because it was a thing of the past. We've been told that for ger- generation. Yeah. So for some people, part of it is that triggering of like, oh my goodness, this is present and real. I don't know very much about it. I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know how to address it. Um, I'm in resistance because, you know, there's a shame that can come with admitting that we don't know something that everybody else seems to know something about. So one of the ways we can respond to that is just resist that it's it's relevant. So all of these different ways that we as human beings might react to stress, which is another way of talking about what race is doing to us, um, show up um, and can show up. And so mindfulness, of course, has, has been very well researched as a support for dealing with stress deepening our emotional intelligence, deepening our social intelligence, um, sensing um, the resources we have within ourselves to help us balance when we're getting triggered and choose how to respond in the face of that rather than just automatically react because simply reacting to our triggers may not be the most effective way to address these (laughs) issues. (laughs) Yeah, so yeah. So I wrote the book really to help us come together around the campfire of these challenges around race, you know, again, and to recognize that we're all in this in some way and we all need some help. And each of us then are invited to reflect what's the help I need and to see then what's the kind of way that these practices can support me in the very personal, I sometimes use the phrase personal curriculum, right? What do I need to learn? What I need to do and be, for me personally to be more effective in these conversations and in this work. I think what's so hard is, and the reason I get so angry is I feel like too many white people have that attitude of, you know, the Supreme court, Justin John Roberts, who suggested the way to get beyond race is to get beyond race, which is so incredibly idiotic and isn't looking at the reality of systemic racism, right. And everything that goes on in the, in the implicit bias and all the things that 
black people and other people of color have to deal with. And it's it's easy for him to sit there and say that when it's not, it, it affects everybody, like you said, but it's not, it does not affect everyone the same way. If you can right. expand on that, and how do we get yeah. white people to be more comfortable with being uncomfortable? Because I, I just feel yeah. like it's just, are we just babies? Can we not grow up and deal with what's real? Such, such good questions. So yeah, Supreme Court Justice Roberts and the Supreme Court in general, frankly. Absolutely. You know what? If we just look at our history, it has not really, except in very exceptional moments, um, been um, an ally, if you will, in service of racial justice. And even in those highlight moments, like in the Supreme Court decision that brought us Brown versus Board of Education and ushered in an era of desegregation and commitment to um, kind of disestablishing the systems of white supremacy that was showing up in public school and in segregated, um, you know, um, public transit and all of those things. Even in that decision, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't say as much, it doesn't say much at all about white supremacy as a problem created and maintained by white people needs to be addressed. Right. Yeah. So there are, you know, so our, our systems are, are kind of part of the problem, but the question you raise about how we deepen resilience or stamina for staying in this work is really what animates my, 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 my project here. Right. You know, when we look at Robin D'Angelo and others who talk about white fragility or, you know, we're really talking about a kind of stress reactivity to the discomfort of looking at race and racism. And it's but I want to say it's something that has been uh, taught, if you will, subtly or trained. It's a training like people aren't born unable to talk about this issue or threatened by it. But if we we have certainly, um, you know, if we've marinated in denial, not knowing, miseducation, which we've radically been miseducated about our history, right? If we've been around people who are uncomfortable talking about it, if we've even worse been punished as some many more people than we realize actually have stories because they come and tell me when I go and present people come up to me with stories about having been physically hit by parents when they mentioned race or brought a person home of a different oh race. Gosh. Right. So, so it is horrible. The trainings around racism that often whites have experienced as well as people of color. And so um, it's a big issue, like how we develop stamina and, and capacity to stay in these conversations, given the, the culture's commitment to denialism and avoidance. And so part of it is just starting where we are, starting in our families or in our workplaces where we have influence and where we're living and showing up every day and really making a commitment that right here in this place, this is going to be a place where we're going to talk about race. This is going to be a place where, you know, um, it's okay to not know actually also because we don't, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. It's okay to not know, but it's also our adult responsibility. I love that you said, can we just grow up? So I do think that's <laughs> it's our responsibility to learn the things that we need for this time to, to give better than we got maybe. Right. So even if we're partly feeling like, Hey, why do I have to do this work? Nobody did this for me. Well, it's realizing that we have um, inherited a world that is, you know, more broken than we realize it is and still playing out some of the painful 
legacies of our past. And we get to choose. How do we want to be in relationship to that? And that really is what my whole book and project is about, too. It's about empowering ourselves to, to feel, you know, it, we are where we are in this. Have you entered into this conversation? No shame, judgment. You got it honestly. You weren't, you didn't learn this. You, you had this or that experience. Can we meet where we are, meet ourselves where we are with some compassion for the fact that, you know, we're, we're just struggling, we're learning, we're doing the best we can. But also with that, mm, the courage to take up the challenge and the responsibility of leaving the world better than we found it around these issues. And then can we build supportive networks and friendships, frankly, so I love what you all are doing here, within which we can learn and grow together, within which we can build trust, because trust has been broken across these experiences, right? So absolutely exactly so we need to be able to build trust and that doesn't happen overnight none of what i'm talking about happens overnight which is why the book is 300 pages long and it constantly keeps us coming back reflection and supporting each other and staying in the conversations together this is life work this book is meant to be like a practice for life you know i love in the book you write many practitioners of mindfulness have been taught whether explicitly or implicitly that looking at racism and exploring efforts to address it or to otherwise engage in talk of justice or politics uh, go against the core commitments of mindfulness this may be a consequence of two factors can you share those factors with us mm-hmm. well you know it could be of course the fact that um you know many of the original teachers of mindfulness were themselves white racialized people who um like you know, again, growing up in the U.S., in the, in the United States at a certain time, certain um, socioeconomic status, many of them were relatively privileged economically and had opportunities to travel and go to Asia and then come back and, oh, yeah. um, that a lot of people don't have, whatever the background or race, right? Yeah. Um, so part of it is that, um, you know, a lot of those teachers have themselves not experienced, don't have direct personal experience with race and racism. Um, and, and therefore weren't looking to see how these practices might translate to the actual work of naming and claiming our responsibility to address race as it shows up. Um, and the other is this, you know, the practices themselves, of course, emerged originally in contexts that were more homogenous and more monoracial. And so while there were other kinds of challenges, you know, um, caste, for example, if we're looking at how these practices originated to some measure, in some measure in India, um, or gender, right, bias, those things were have been explicitly discussed as things we want to address through mindfulness, but less race as such because they were coming out of context originally that weren't infused with race. As we know, race is a feature in some societies in ways that it isn't so much in others, and it's certainly a feature in our society, but we borrowed these practices from places where it wasn't so much. So it's, it's our generation's responsibility then to make the connections. Because mindfulness is really about a a set of practices that helps us relate to what we are dealing with wherever we are. It's meant to uh, adapt and be applied in the context that we're in. And, you know, that question, what's called for here? 
is like a central teaching question for mindfulness. And if what's called for is better addressing race and racism, gender, its intersection, the, the intersections of race, class, disability, ability, ageism, if what's called for is to address it, that's what we have to do. And we have to adapt our mindfulness then to be able to do that. Yeah, we absolutely do. I love in the book that you have practices too. You, tell us about the micro practice of pause for compassion. Hmm. So, uh, so this idea really is one of the a number of different ways that I infuse compassion in my books. And one of my readers said, I looked at this book and I saw there's compassion running through it. It, you know, gives me a sense of ease to see that. Um, and that's absolutely true. Compassion being that will to alleviate our suffering and others, right? We're in this. And so that pause for, for, for compassion around these issues is about, you know, just recognizing there'll be moments where something will happen where we're feeling that pain point of race or racism. And um, one, so one of the practices that I offer is to sort of really pause and recognize this is a moment of pain around race and racism. This basically, this is what it feels like this, this, this feeling I'm have this sick sickness in the pit of my stomach, this rage, this is it. Um, I'm not the only person that's ever felt this actually other people feel this all the time. Um, and so I'm having a human experience. In other words, from recognizing that we're having that experience rather than letting that kind of, sort of churn its way into, you know, a kind of, um, you know, it can, it can kind of fix, get us in a fix and get us in a moment of mental distress because we're just sort of spinning our wheels around it. But if we can allow it to open us up to the fact that we're human beings struggling like others have acknowledge that this is a feature of our experience and we're not the first person to feel this and we're not going to be the last, but it's through recognizing that that we can kind of expand out and feel that sense of connectedness to humanity. And then also just acknowledge that as we are feeling this, we deserve support. We deserve kindness to ourselves and to other people who have gone through similar things. And that can be just even those moments that can be a bit of a taste of how these practices can, can deliver us to what I call personal justice. In other words, not always just waiting for the new policy out there. We're, we're, we're at waiting to kind of figure out a way to live with this in a way that does more good than harm that helps us heal as we go. And so that practice is an example of a micro practice for bringing personal justice right in as you are continuing to do this work. Yeah, you know, I I thought it was interesting when you're talking about implicit bias. I love that you shared a story about calling a Latina student Maria when her mm-hmm. name was Rosarita, and then you also shared about a, having a conversation in line with a older white gentleman who uh, was like, "Oh, well, you're going to be the next Anita Hill," or the kind of like, "Oh, you're going to be a lawyer," and then that that was like his go to, right? right. Just tell us a little about that about both of those experiences. Yeah, right. Well, so again, what you're naming is that our minds built for the society and the time that we're in and, and shaped by that society in ways that we sometimes don't appreciate. We think it's all our choice, but actually stuff is coming in all the time <laughs> that, right. you know, we didn't choose, but who that's there. Oh, I have a, an association there. Ooh. So that's true for all of us. And as you say, I've written about my own experiences with this and um, I've got another story where a, a black delivery man came to my house with fly- flowers and he was like, flowers for Professor McGee. And I'm like, I'm Professor McGee. And he's like, 
are you sure? Like he's not, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I think so, I know who I am. Right, okay. right, right. But again, to have a black male. Yeah. Sort of, I'm not the picture he had of a professor. So again, all of us are in this. And so can we, can we turn toward rather than away from what is true in our own minds without shame or with as little shame as we can manage? Cause that's not helpful. Um, and, um, and, and just sort of prepare to deal with the work of repair, um, and, and reconnection to, um, our values, right? So that the gap between the intentions and values that we hold for just seeing people as they are, not judging, not prejudging people so that we are acting on those values more so than just reacting and replaying the inner training, the subtle trainings that we all have and that our brains will show us we have if we have the courage to at least acknowledge it. Yeah. You know, there is so much more to talk about. We only have a few minutes left. I wanted to mention that I I think it was your TEDx talk. I watched so much of your stuff. I just think you're wonderful. Thanks. And you you held up a picture of this beautiful black woman and you said, what do you think she does? Or who do you think is, mm-hmm. for some reason, I was like, I think she's a director of human resources. I don't know why, but I'm just like, she just to me. <laughs> right. I, like, I think she's a director. Of, I don't know why. Um, but tell us who she was. And I don't know why that, but that was like the second you asked, that was just what came to my mind. I don't know. There was something, she looked very professional and very, I don't know, something about her just rang. Right. This was a picture I raised of an African-American woman. Um, and you know, she's middle age, right? She's a, uh, not a, not a young woman, not an old woman, that an African-American woman. Um, this woman is a baroness, a member of parliament in the United Kingdom, Baroness Lawrence. Um, she's known as being kind of, I mean, this is a sort of a, a, a poignant label to have, but she's like the, the, the British, uh, the mother of the British Rodney King. Meaning that there was an incident in, in the UK in which, um, a black man was, um, was violently assaulted, um, in ways that triggered a national reckoning around racism and the, and the police response to it. And, um, uh, and this particular woman became the face of working with as a mother who actually in, in that case had actually lost her son. Became the face of um, the reality that racism is still uh, impacting our, our communities, our families, taking our beloved children, and we needed to address it. So, yes, um, but you look at her and you do not know she's that you wouldn't assume she is a national leader in, you know, considered to be one of the most admired, if not the most admired woman in her era in the UK because oh. of her long-standing commitment to human rights. When we think of a British woman uh, in leadership, will we think of that woman? Mostly not. And so helping us really check ourselves, because we've all been trained, and this is not to shame anybody. It's just, to say, you know what? Women of color are not often presented as leaders of parliament. We don't realize that that's a reality. It's not the majority, but they're there. And therefore, um, what we want to do is disrupt the habit that, that kind of doesn't even allow that to be possible because if we can't see a woman of color at the highest position of leadership. Then when we're meeting those young women in our classrooms, when we're seeing a young woman of color in our neighborhood or at the mall, 
we are bringing the assumptions about where we think they belong, which not shouldn't be the ceiling or limit where where they might go. And we therefore need to not get in the way of the possibility that people can be bigger and more than we ever thought they could be. And mindful, mindfulness can help us with that. Oh, definitely. You know, Rhonda, we only scratched the surface. I really hope you'll come back. I hate that I have to let you go. Uh, the book is The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Rhonda V. McGee, tell us everywhere we can find you. Oh, in the foreword, John Kabat-Zinn, awesome. The poem yes. book is fantastic. I'll just say rondavmcgee.com is the best way to connect with me and stay in touch. And it's been beautiful. And I look forward to being with you all again. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Tell your friends and family. This is really important and we want to get the word out. So glad that you're listening. Please keep coming back. Also, follow us on Instagram at Active allyship.podcast. Thank you so much.